Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I want us to look today at a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Let me read verse 1 for us as we begin. Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We're going to talk today about a living sacrifice, but first of all, I want to ask you a question. What have you done this summer? What have you done this summer? How many of you went on vacation? You got a little time away, right? It was good. You had to come home to get some rest from that vacation. That's how we do it now, right? We spend more energy on vacation than we do at rest. So we have to come home, get back in the grind to get some rest. Did you go to the beach this summer? Did you go to the mountains? Did you go to the backyard? I mean, what, what did you do this summer? Truth be known, before you answer, it really doesn't matter. Because if you haven't heard, a guy jumped out of an airplane at 25,000 feet without a parachute. Makes everything else just kind of seem worthless, right? I mean, gosh, I didn't do that, <laughs> you know? I mean, you would just want to go. Have you heard about this guy? He landed in a net. Yes, he did live to tell about it. Landed in a net. From 25,000, couldn't even see the net when he started. I believe the net was 200 feet square, if I'm not mistaken. What? I mean, doesn't that just make you want to go, what? I can remember as a kid when my mother used to say to me, if everybody else jumps off a cliff, are you going to go jump off a cliff too? Now mothers are saying, what, are you going to go jump from an airplane at 25,000 feet with no parachute? It just makes everything kind of seem minuscule doesn't it right what what compels a person to do this can you imagine him telling his wife he had a wife and a son can you imagine him telling his wife what he was planning to do I assure you the jump out of that airplane in my home would not have been near as scary as me telling my wife what I thought I was about to do much scarier for me Because I would have been set straight and that plane would have been grounded permanently. Not going to happen. Or, never mind. I mean, what compels a person? You know, the only reason that I've heard so far in the news that he gave was that he wanted to be the first. (laughs) There's a reason it hasn't been done before, fella. You know, he he wanted to be the first. Is being the first really so glorious that you would risk it all? Evidently it is because he did. And I give him his props. He did it and he survived. But the reason of wanting to be the first to do it, 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 what kind of motivation is so strong and so great that it justifies risking Your whole life. You ever think about that? What kind of motivation, what kind of of glory or reward is so strong that it justifies risking your whole life? That's obviously the question that he had to pose to himself. And that's what I want us to consider today. A motivation 
that is so compelling and glorious that it is in fact actually worth your whole life. Your whole life. Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11. The whole first 11 chapters of this letter to the church in Rome is simply this. It is a foundation of the gospel. It is Paul's most extensive treatise of the gospel, clarifying it, of what it is and how it is that God has brought it about. But when you get to chapter 12 of Romans, Paul actually turns, and in verse 1, that's where he says to you, therefore, the therefore that he begins chapter 12 with is a therefore that brings all of the first 11 chapters together and simply says this, because God is true and has done this, I appeal to you. I appeal to you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your spiritual act of worship. Friends, this, this is no small task. This is no small risk that he's... Uh, preparing them for or placing before him, but he's making the strongest of appeals to the brothers and the sisters in the church when he says, I appeal to you to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Friends, God designed the Christian life as a living expression of his truth. You see, chapters 1 through 11 aren't just for intellect, and then chapters 12 through 16 for the walking it out, but rather the intellect that is alive takes life within us that it might be lived out in such a way that what we live actually demonstrates what God has said. That's God's intent. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is a living sacrifice from first to last. From first to last. We are purchased by God. We are purchased with God's blood. And we are authorized for God's kingdom. And so we have to ask today, what does he mean by a living sacrifice? What does he mean by a living sacrifice? And here's what I want to pin on you today. Here's what I want to drive deep and anchor within your heart this morning is simply this, that Christians glorify God as a living sacrifice when we live as faithful stewards. Christians glorify God as a living sacrifice when we live as faithful stewards. And I want to propose to you today three motivations from this one single verse that says, yes, Jesus is completely worthy of your life as a living sacrifice. The first motivation that I want to present to you begins in the first part of this verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present. Here's the first motivation that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross compels us to live for God. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross compels us to live for God. Paul makes an emphatic plea to the Christians and he says this, because of God's mercy, 
because of God's mercy to us. You see, this emphatic plea is in recognition of all he's already taught. What did he teach? Beginning in chapter 1 and then uh, painfully explained out in the next four chapters, he tells us this, that we... People are dead in our sins. We are without excuse before God. And there is not one that is righteous. Not one. We don't even have an inkling of righteousness in us that makes God have to look at us and go, oh, yeah, but you. No. We are without excuse. Talk to the hand, right? Don't even, but it's not there. And you know what? Because of sin and its condemnation and shame upon us, when we get real with God and we get real with ourselves, we agree with God. I'm not perfect. That the, the, the shame and the condemnation of sin is real in me and on me. And that's what Paul says. But he also tells us this, that because of God, we are fully justified in Christ Jesus. No, there's not one that is righteous, for the wages of sin is death, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he tells us in chapter 3. But God, moving to chapter 5, at just the right time, it says, he sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, where we had no righteousness in our own, Jesus took our complete unrighteousness and he bore God's wrath for that. He bore our penalty for that. And he gave to us his righteousness, placed it upon us in his sacrifice. And this, friends, is the unveiling of God's mercy. But God, in his mercy, this is the appeal Paul makes by the mercies of God. You see, what do you mean by mercy? He means this, that God didn't give us what we deserved. God didn't give us what we earned. God showed us mercy. Mercy. And God showed himself as not only just and righteous, but merciful and loving, doing for us not only what we could not do for ourselves, but rather what we did not deserve to have done for us. When was the last time you experienced something that changed your life? I mean, that, that just completely changed your life. I, I hope this doesn't happen every day for you because that is probably a little melodramatic. No, it's over the top. Let's be honest about it. But I mean, in the trajectory of your life from birth till today, things that have happened that have genuinely changed who you are and the direction that you were headed. Something so powerful and moving that it changed the way you live. Sometimes it's big with immediate changes that are produced. But very often, our Christianity and the way the gospel comes to us, it starts seemingly small like a mustard seed, but it grows to be the greatest of all. And 
though it started from a seemingly small beginning, it proves bigger than imagined. You see, sometimes the gospel strikes like a guided missile to the heart, but it usually just begins as a seed that begins to grow. And after a time, pokes through the ground. And in a little more time, grows to a strong vine that produces See, personal faith in Jesus produces a life transformation that lasts for eternity. And friends, you can't look at Jesus' cross and just remain an admirer. You can't look at his sacrifice and understand what he did for us and just be a fan of Jesus. I follow him as a fan. You can't even look at the cross of Jesus Christ and remain a neutral bystander for the cross demands a distinct response of either worship or walk away. You will either look upon the cross of Christ as the soldier did who had been an unbeliever all his life until that time and said, surely this was the Son of God. Or you will continue to scoff at him, dismiss him, and walk away unchanged. Those are the options. And the question I begin to pose to you is simply this. That Jesus' cross, when we take a look at it and we consider that it is our death in his death, compels us, compels us to live as a living sacrifice. Jesus either compels you by great love to worship or he repulses you in unbelief to scoff at God. And how we live our lives reveals our response to the cross. This includes how we act outwardly, but it also includes how we incline inwardly in the depths of our being. How we attitude towards others from within. And it also determines how we perceive and how we process our thoughts and our responses and how we rationalize our actions. You see, the cross of Jesus compels us because it empowers us to offer our lives unto God. What response, friend, is your life demonstrating to Jesus' cross? Jesus' sacrifice on the cross compels us to live for God. That's our first motivation. The second motivation I want you to see is this. Paul says this, Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. To, to present just simply means to offer up for the sake of the one that will be receiving. In other words, if I present something to you, the presentation of what is given to you puts the spotlight on you. I'm present, but I'm not the purpose for that moment. The recipient is. And when we present our lives to God, we put the spotlight, we put the glory on God by what we give to him and the reason or the purpose for which we give him. And so a sacrifice is something given for the sake of one receiving it. But there's a unique distinction that's made in this passage of Scripture. And the unique distinction is made in Paul's exhortation. The sacrifice is living. Sacrifices don't live. What do they do? They die for the cause. They made a sacrifice. They got rid of something. 
Something died for the sake of the one to whom it was offered. But what Paul is telling us is that our lives become a living sacrifice. The reason that our death is no good as a sacrifice is because our death provides nothing for us. And the only thing it proves is that God is still sovereign over us. That's why Jesus had to die. That's why there had to be a perfect spotless lamb offered up and not the imperfect sacrifice that you and I would provide with our lives. You see, through the gospel, God brings a death for us. God brings a death for us that produces a death in us that brings life to us. That's what the gospel is all about. And that's what he's explaining here. You see, by faith, Jesus' death becomes our death. I die in him to my sin and to myself. Let me read from the sixth chapter of Romans, verses 4 through 11. Listen to what Paul says as he talks about how it is that the death that Jesus died on the cross is actually the death for every person who by faith trusts in him. We were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Hold on. Are you ready? For the death he died He died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I want to take those last two verses and I want to make sure that you see something. Verse Verse 10, he says this, for the death he died. And then the very next phrase, verse 11, so you also. You see that? You see what Paul is teaching us is simply this, that Jesus' death was your death by faith. That what happened to Jesus on the cross has happened to you by faith when you trust in him. You are dead to your sin once for all. Sin no longer holds authority or dominion over your life if by faith you've trusted in Jesus Christ, turning away from sin and putting your faith in him. Listen, I'm not saying it's no longer present in us in the here and now, but I'm telling you it does not rule us. And I'll come back to that in a very practical way in just a moment. 
But I want to ask you this in considering this second motivation that we offer our lives to God means that we live as a steward. That in the way we live, our lives are presented to God as a steward, a living sacrifice. And this can only begin when we see that we no longer live, but he lives in us. In other words, we've died on the cross where Christ was crucified. And now the one who lives in this body is not just lame, but it's the spirit alive within me from the living God who has placed him there. Why? That's only possible because Jesus died on the cross. You see, Christians are alive unto God by faith in Jesus that we might offer our lives unto him. The Christian life is not about giving something up, but rather offering something up. And I might say this to you. That's exactly what Jesus did. He laid his life down. He did not have it taken from him. And that's what Christians do in the model of our Savior is we offer our lives up. We don't just have it taken from us. Freely we offer it up. So faithful stewardship is a matter of offering all of life to honor and to glorify God. You see, Paul is addressing how we live our lives in this physical world. Chapters 12 through 16, verse 1 is so critical because it sets the context for how we will obey the reality of the salvation for what God has already done. Verses, or excuse me, chapters 1 through 11. Paul will explicitly lay it out in chapters 12 through 16. But verse 1, he sets the context for how that will be done. Chapters 12 through 16 will not be about your pleasing God because you do right. It will be about you being pleasing unto God because you've offered your life up to him as a faithful steward. A living sacrifice. Your body refers to life in this physical world and it includes the whole person. You see, we steward our lives in order to point to the source of our life, the one that is alive within us, Jesus Christ. I want you to think about your life as a living sacrifice in three realms. Three realms for faithful stewardship. These won't come as new to you, I don't believe. But hopefully they'll be helpful to you to think about how it is that you live out the reality of what Christ has done for you on the cross. Victory over sin victory over death, life that has come. First of all, the first realm is the realm of time. Time is the great equalizer, right? Show me a person who has more than 24 hours in a day and seven days a week, and I'll show you a person who's hallucinating. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. You get 24 hours in a day and seven days a week, and you don't any more know the end of your days and the number of your days than I do. But God does. Time is the great equalizer. It's where we spend so much trying to get more, is it not? I mean, I'm just spending today trying to figure out how to get more. From the fountain of youth that started generations ago to all of today's productivity apps. I mean, man, we just ringing it for every ounce, inch that we can get out of it. And one best way to think about time in your life is not so much by the passing of it, tick-tock, but by the quality of it in your life. You see, each hour may be equal in time, but not every hour is equal in value. One exhausted hour of your life is not equal to one energized hour, is it? 
and you know the difference. If you want to see the difference, call me about 9 o'clock in the morning and you'll get a full ramification of what I'm like on Monday morning. You really don't want to do that. It wouldn't matter. I wouldn't want to answer anyway. You see, faithful stewardship of time isn't about squeezing every possible second out of your life so that you can give some to God, but it's about living so that every hour brings honor to God. Honoring God with your time is about giving Him your first and your best in your time and your energy. At this time of year, I read a lot of personal productivity resources. And about on the fourth or fifth resource that I was reading, somewhere around the first of July, uh, I hit a wall. And I felt myself begin to grow tense. And I thought, how in the world have I ever survived without this guy's resource and all these productivity tips? I mean, good grief, my whole life's been a waste before I read this book. I mean, I was exhausted. I go, oh, I've got ounces over here that haven't been squeezed out, and I've got inches over here that haven't been covered, and, and, and I've just got so much left to give. I mean, drip, drop, right? That's what I began to feel like in my spirit. And the longer I read, or I was actually listening to it, the more disconnected I began to grow from the author's message. And I don't think it had anything to do with the author. It, it was the spirit actually speaking to me as I was thinking about the future and, and what's coming for our church and, and, and even this message a little bit, but also just my in and out schedule of the week. You see, God's creational command to go forth and multiply, it holds productivity inherent within it. I mean, just being busy is no glorious kind of thing. We're all busy, but we've got to be able to produce with our life. God designed us to produce. But this incessant striving and drive to be more highly productive, to squeeze more out of less. And, and the incessant demand that gets placed upon us in the world from it, from the productivity philosophies, from the principles, and usually they're just simple practices. If you'll do this, you'll be more productive. That's funny. I find that I spend all my time doing that. I don't have time for anything else, right? To me, I, I've just come to a point so many often where it's, it's just another form of chaotic chasing after the wind. And you know what happens when you chase after the wind? You may feel it, but you don't ever catch it. You feel it in your life? Maybe, maybe at this point in the summer, you're beginning to feel that way. I see it on Facebook. Lord, when will school start again and these creatures go out of my house? Right? I'm with you. I feel you. Three months ago, Lord, I'm so thankful for summer. And you're right. I mean, it just has a way. See, a few weeks ago during the worship service, I was sitting right there and the bulb and the projector exploded and the projector itself burned up. And I would offer to you, that's really the only way that we know, yep, got squeezed every ounce out of it. I mean, that will never be used again. We got it all. Right? You want it all, you got it all. Completely burned up. Do you really want your life to go that way? Today, tomorrow? Be so productive, just disintegrate right in front of people and go, wow, they did it! That right there is perfection! I don't want that, friends. I genuinely do not want that. And while it seems to be so common these days, especially among pastors, 
I don't want to explode. I don't want to burn out. And I don't want to burn up. Right? Another resource provided a clarifying principle that I won't give you the principle, but I'm going to give you what I believe is an overarching scriptural principle for Christians to live as stewards in order to present our lives to God. And I'm going to read this to you because trying to rephrase it will take longer than just reading it. Listen to this. The idea that we can have it all and do it all is not new. The myth has been peddled for so long, I believe virtually everyone alive today is infected with it. It is sold in advertising, it is championed in corporations, it is embedded in job descriptions that provide huge lists of required skills and experience as standard. It is embedded in university applications that require dozens of extracurricular activities. What is new is how especially damaging the myth is today. In a time when choice and expectations have increased exponentially, it results in stressed people trying to cram yet more activities into their already overscheduled lives. It creates corporate environments that talk about work and life balance, but still inspect, or expect their employees to be on their smartphones 24-7, 365. It leads to staff meetings where as many as 10 top priorities are discussed with no sense of irony at all. Hold on. This is going to hurt. The word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. I'm going to read that again. The word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. It meant the very first or prior thing. It stayed singular, are you ready, for the next 500 years. Only in the 1900s did we pluralize the term and start talking about priorities, plural. Illogically, we reasoned that by changing the word, we could bend reality. Somehow, we would now be able to have multiple first things. But when we try to do it all and have it all, we find ourselves making trade-offs at the margins that we would never take on as intentional strategy. When we don't purposefully and deliberately choose where to focus our energies and times, other people, our bosses, our colleagues, our clients, even our families, will choose for us. And before long, we'll have lost sight of everything that is meaningful and important. We can either make our choices deliberately or allow other people's agendas to control our life. I'm calling for a Joshua 24, 15 moment in our church. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Remember the movie City Slickers? The old dude, 
It says it's the one thing. You never told you what the one thing was. I think that was the point. Priority is a singular word. The chaos of our world has made it something altogether different. And I think this strikes at the essential nature of the lordship of Jesus Christ in the life of every Christian. See, I want to be productive with my life, but most of all, and really inconsiderate of productivity, which it will be inclusive of, but not compared with, I want to be found faithful. 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 You can't offer a living sacrifice when you live like a walking zombie. You can't present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice when everything receives equal priority and therefore is a priority and, and there, there is no priority of time or energy. You have to understand that rest is as essential for faithful stewardship as work. And we must learn to trust God in our doing and in our not doing. Christian, only you can stop the world from pressing you to squeeze out every last bit. Presenting your life as a living sacrifice begins by ordering your time and your energy under this one priority. It is the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that compares. There's nothing that competes. Christ is Lord alone. That was the principle that began to set me on this trajectory of my, is my time prioritized to the Lord Jesus Christ? To give him not only the first of the tick-tock, but the first of who I am, the energy, the alertness, and the desires and the affections of my heart so I can give him the allegiance of my life. The second realm I want you to consider and apply this principle is in the realm of treasure. This realm addresses how it is that we resource life, the whole of life's treasure. You see, the Bible says much about money and specifically how it is that money and treasure affects us. 40% of Jesus' teaching address money. And the big issue is to say that if Jesus gave it 40% of his time, that makes it a significant issue for Christians. He also said this in Matthew, that no man will serve two masters. And he puts forth that you'll either love the one and hate the other, or love this one and hate this one. You cannot serve man and money. Money competes because treasure reveals where your heart lies. Treasure reveals what you're affectionate for. It reveals what you hope in. It reveals where your trust rests. And when Jesus is Lord, righteousness rules over your treasure through stewardship. Listen to this. Listen to this comparison that he gives us in the Old Testament wisdom literature. Psalm 37, 16 is, Better is the little. 
I know. Convincing you of that is like a whole series of sermons. But better is the, and I put myself in that too. I mean, it's the day and time in which we live. But better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. You see, the question is this. That if we're going to tear our heart away from the claws of the treasures and what it can provide that this world says, we've got to begin to believe in the wisdom that is eternal that says better is the little that the righteous has than the much that the wicked hoards. Proverbs 15, 16 says, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. I could just begin to list names that are in the public spotlight right now and to illustrate that for you, but I'll save us all the heartache. Proverbs 28, 6 says, Better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a rich man whose ways are perverse. And you see, at the heart of it, most each and every one of us in the room would go, I don't know, I don't know. I'd be willing to do some scientific work on that. But this is Jesus speaking, not Lane. And Jesus says, it is better to be righteous, to be holy, to be singularly set apart to the Lord. You see, what he's saying is not that things or stuff are bad. Jesus never even said money is bad. You can have all that he's given you. As a matter of fact, what you do have is what he's given you. The problem is you can't let what you have have you. And that's what Jesus is warning us of here. When our treasure is not fully submitted to Jesus' lordship, neither is our heart. And Christian, your life can only be presented to God as a living sacrifice when you first offer your treasure and fully submit it to his lordship and the principles and the wisdom with which he has given us to steward it. The third realm that I would present to you is the realm of talent. Talent is just simply how you express your life in this body, your natural gifts, your talents, your strengths, and your abilities. You see, nowhere else in life is the whole more dependent on each individual part than in the local church. We are dependent upon the work of God in each person's expression of life and the talent of their life in order to grow and to mature as Christians. See, in our world today, we've been trained to trust professionals. Man, if I don't get it, I'm just going to call somebody that can fix it so I don't have to worry about it, right? And to a large extent, that's good counsel. But when it comes to Christian growth and maturity, that's horrible counsel. Nothing thwarts your spiritual growth and maturity faster, nor the church's growth and maturity faster, than each individual Christian failing to express the talent of their life among and for the purposes of the mission of church. And the mission of God's people. And friends, I present to you something I've said to you countless number of times. You will never fully know God's purpose or will for your life without faithfully serving among his people for his kingdom mission. You just won't know it. Because God ordained that the people that are around you would affirm it, uh, identify it, encourage it, and cultivate it. You need one another. That's why community is so important. Again, another series of messages for another day. 
But Jesus' lordship means that the way he's made you and all that he's given you are designed and redeemed for you to steward for his kingdom kingdom purposes in your time, in your treasure, and in your talent. And so presenting your life to God means applying the principle of one priority to all realms. And that principle is this, Jesus is Lord. Is Jesus Lord of your time? Are you trying to squeeze a little more out and figure out how you can get it done before the end of the day? Is Jesus Lord of your treasure? Is Jesus Lord of your talent? Does He get a portion that honors Him, that represents the whole of who He is and what He's done for your life? Or does He just get whatever can be squeezed out? What is he getting? Presenting your life to God means applying that principle and asking the question, will I be found faithful? That's the second motivation. Offering your life to God means living as a faithful steward. The third motivation is this. Faithful stewardship aligns all of life as an act of worship that honors God. Here's what Paul says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, To present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, stewardship means living so that all of life honors and glorifies God. Everything in life is an act of worship. It's just a matter of who or what you're worshiping with it. And when you offer something to God, only that which is holy and righteous is pleasing and acceptable to Him. Listen to me. You know why it's so important for you to operate by the principle in every realm of your life that Jesus is Lord and not just try to squeeze out? Because everything you could squeeze out, no matter what it would accumulate to, is not pleasing and acceptable to God. You know why? Because you do it in your strength and not by faith in Him. God has not commanded you to go and do your best for Him. God has commanded you to trust in Him and what He wants to do in you. I can't tell you if one act is sinful or acceptable to God, but the Spirit of God can. And I know He will right now, even as we're talking about this. And as you are beginning to think about the different areas of your life and the way you're living your life, and is this principle of lordship being fully applied in every way in your life? Is what you're offering to God pleasing and acceptable? Man, listen, the thing about Christianity is this. We don't have to wonder if God will receive our sacrifice. And that's different from every other religion in the world. Every other religion that I've studied and that I've spent time talking to them, they have to strive ceaselessly and and, and completely over and over and over again, just hoping and praying that, that their God might somehow accept whatever they give and it won't be the worst case scenario that they could believe. But there's never any assurance. There's never any hope there's never any encouragement in that we never have to wonder that Christian when we live by faith in God we are assured our salvation is as eternally secure as it could be because we don't hold God he holds us and when you live your life under Jesus's lordship you don't have to wonder if God's going to go man that just doesn't measure up today 
God's going to pour out. You're going to forget the sacrifice because of the blessing that blanketed you. You don't have to wonder if God loves you. Why? By the mercies of God are our defining motivation. In and of ourselves, we're not acceptable to God. Not in our nature, not in our being, not in our achievement, nor our accomplishment. Nothing about us beckons us unto God. But it doesn't have to. That's the beauty of the gospel. No one gains standing before God because of who they are or what they've done. We are accepted by God. We are holy and pleasing to God because of what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And it's only possible because God puts Christ's righteousness on us by faith. Our lives are holy and acceptable unto God only when we live by faith in Jesus. And what Romans chapter 6 verses 12 through 14 does is it makes an immediate application. That's the passage I read a while ago about our transformation from death to life. Because he died, you live. It never gets more complex than that. And there is no more glorious understanding that we could have. He says this, do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Friends, that's a motivation that's worth risking it all. Because you've been taken out of a death that you couldn't get yourself out of, and you've been brought into a life that you can only love and enjoy more and more and more. So don't present your life to the things that are death to you, but present your life as an instrument of righteousness to Jesus Christ, that the life he's given to you, that the life he's put in you can come to full fruition. You see, friends, the one who rules you will be the one that that you place over you as Lord. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. Will you give your life to the instruments of death that lie to you and that deceive you every time and you know it because you walk away angry that you fell for it every time you walk into it? Or will you give your life to be an instrument of righteousness, to walk with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, help us today. Many of us have lost our way. Some have wandered far from you. Some are wavering about following you. God, I just pray you give us a view of the cross today. The view that compels us to offer our lives as a living sacrifice and confirms in us that you are wholly worthy to give our all. I pray that you'll help us understand in applying our life that, that when we offer our life as a living sacrifice, it means that you want us to live, that, that, that we're a living sacrifice, and the way we live as faithful stewards brings a life that represents what you've done for us.
that living as a faithful steward, Lord, doesn't just, uh, doesn't just appease you for the moment and in the moment, but it offers all of life as an act of worship. Spirit of God, I pray that in great mercy and grace today, you would just blanket this place, that you would blanket our hearts and you would minister as you're speaking to each person. Give them understanding and insight and illumination into how you want them to apply it even now. And move us today to stand to you and say, Lord, today I choose that I will serve you. I will love you. I will worship you. I will live for you. My life will be a living sacrifice in every way, in every realm, in every moment. Friends, if you've not settled that in your heart, I need you to settle it this morning. The Lord Jesus is inviting you to settle that this morning. Every realm is Jesus Lord. Or are there other priorities that are competing with you? Don't walk away today without enthroning Jesus where he rightfully sits, ruling as Lord.